Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The Federal Reserve then, the main event, the FOMC almost certain to raise rates a quarter point at the close of a two-day meeting today. Investors focused on whether the panel will signal one or two additional hikes in 2018. Joining us to discuss is Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Global Co-Head of FX Strategy. Alan, good morning to you, sir, and thank you for giving us your time. What are you looking for? Morning, yes. Uh, well, I'm with the market, I think, in uh, pursuing the startup session, really, as to whether the median dot in the 2008 uh, will actually sort of move up uh, another 25 basis points. Um, you know, I think the key there is, you know, really, particularly what Powell's dot does. We think Powell has been so far um, really in the camp of expecting three rate hikes this year. He could easily shift to four rate hikes. If that's the case, then I think the market will actually take this hawkish. Alan, it's somewhat interesting that the, the market and yourself are still obsessed over the dots when share power doesn't want us to be. Um, why? Well, I think it's the clearest signal of the Fed's intentions. Um, well, I have a lot of sympathy uh, in, in general in terms of, you know, Chairman Powell suggesting we look otherwise. Is You know, really, is there such a difference when, uh, you know, seven or eight uh, members expect a hike in 2018? Um, you know, there's not really uh, a particular shift. or I don't think it necessarily raises the odds of, uh, you know, say, four rate hikes in 2018 significantly. But nonetheless, I think the market's going to take it that way. Alan, do you think the Federal Reserve has the appetite to really tighten financial conditions and, and move through neutral? Um, yes, I think they do. But I think it's, you know, one step at a time. First, yeah. get to neutral, see what financial conditions are, see the state of the economy, see in particular where we are in inflation. And then if need be, if the economy is uh, still humming along above trend rates of growth, and uh, that would be indicative of future inflation, maybe moving above target, then absolutely they'll hike it, it and they'll move. Seems- and. It just seems to me Sorry, Alan, no, we, we've got to question their appetite for two things, um, their appetite to move through neutral and their appetite to, to tolerate above target inflation. How, how do you balance those two things, Alan? Yeah, I think, you know, the Fed's spoken about the idea of being symmetric in terms of the inflation target, and they've suggested that, yes, you know, we've uh, lived through a period where inflation has been below target, so we can live through a period where inflation is above target. I think that's a lot easier said than done. I think if inflation starts to move above target and if they start tolerating it, the bond market is going to do the tightening for them. And I think that's going to be make life very difficult for the Fed. Uh, I think the Fed rather should be in charge of things and directing things in, on the short end rather than letting the bond market take control. We're just going to take a 10-second break from the Fed to bring Tom Keane in for the other big headline, NAFTA. Wins the World Cup, Tom Keane. What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I've been watching the news flaws, just watching it. And we'll get to the, We're having fun, folks, with the, the World Cup. The US, really beginning the to The U.S., Canada, and Mexico. You and I are going in 2026. But, <clears throat> people are making wall jokes in that. And, of course, The Guardian just looking here yeah. is Canada, USA, and Mexico. And I've seen others that are USA, Mexico, and in Canada. It was called the United Bid. For our listeners that don't know what we're talking about, it's yeah. just crossed the Bloomberg. Big headline that the United States, Canada, and Mexico have won the bid to host the 2026 World Cup. from now. We go from 18 to, to Qatar. 22 to 26. To NAFTA. If it's still around well, Who's in the host team? I mean, the host The United States like gets Russia. the final. The United States gets the final. So they split up the games. The bulk of the games will be in the United States. And I believe the final will be in New Jersey. 
Oh, really? Yeah. You're way ahead of this uh, than I am. Ellen Ruskin, we've been we've been looking at this, and maybe it's the World Cup of Central Banks as well. And the World Cup of Central Banks centers around not the distractions of June 13th, but the reality of when they actually address balance sheets. Are we going to hear a balance sheet discussion today? I think we'll hear a little bit about it. Uh, you know, what you're seeing is some tightening of liquidity way ahead of what was anticipated. And, you know, consequently, you're seeing the funds rates sort of move up and, and move up in relation to the uh, rate that's paid on excess mm-hmm. reserves. So I think what you're certainly going to see is the IEO, uh, sorry, the IOER rate moving up about 20 basis points. And that would be still consistent with the funds rate uh, really sort of tracking in the middle of its target. So uh, between a new target of, say, 1.75% and 2%. Right. It's really a technical measure, and it, people shouldn't get too confused about it, but it could confuse a few people. There is a measure that our audience looks at coast to coast, and it's not a technical measure. It's the paycheck after inflation. Uh, I see curve, st- uh, curve flattening this morning where we may break through to new flatness off of those wage data yesterday. To a guy like you, are you interested in the nominal wage, pretty good, or are you more interested in the inflation dynamic underneath it? Uh, Tom, I'm interested in both. Uh, I think what's uh, usually taken for granted is the idea that uh, if you have wage inflation, you'll naturally have uh, CPI inflation. And similarly, on the you know, CPI side, uh, if you have CPI-related inflation, that you'll have wage inflation. That's not necessarily the case, really. So there's a more confused dynamic underneath it. Obviously, for as you rightly point out, for the person in uh, in the street, the real wage really ultimately counts more. I would say this, though. One has to be careful about the noise around CPI, the headline CPI at least, as it relates to energy prices in particular. So there's a good reason, I think, why we look at core inflation in particular and try to strip out energy prices and the noise uh, behind that. Alan, let's get a trade from you just to wrap things up. Euro dollar one seventeen fifty eight. We go into the Fed meeting later this afternoon and ECB's decision tomorrow. Do you want to buy or sell Euro dollar going into Friday? Yeah, I think probably it's a buy, actually. So we've had uh, of the last four rate hikes. Um, we've had three of them have been sort of buy the rumor, sell the fact. And, you know, that means really that the Fed raises rates, two-year heels tend to go down, and the uh, dollar has tended to go down. And I think we're in for another one of those events, really, um, mostly because mm-hmm. we've got the ECB as a follow-up. Alan Ruskin, great to catch up with you. Deutsche yeah, Bank's global you. co-head yeah. of FX Strategy. Right now, there may be a transaction announced today, or at least a bid, I should say, an offer. And this is after AT&T Time Warner. Ian Whitaker's with Liberum and has been looking at the media frenzy to come. Some would say one big uh, roll-up. Ian Whitaker, would you expect to hear from Mr. Roberts and Comcast today of an all-cash effort for Fox? I I think it's definitely a strong possibility that's the case. There's no doubt that people will wait and see what happened with this court case. If you look at the ruling, the court case would definitely seem to open the way for vertical integration to, to happen much more aggressively in the media sector. And there's always been this sort of case, if you look at Comcast, that they're interested in the Fox assets that Disney uh, were also interested in. So you know, the short answer is yes, I would. 
And I guess, Ian, the, the clues in the price action, Comcast down in the pre-market by 3.5%, Disney trading lower, Fox trading positive because we're expecting a bidding war. What is the kind of price that you think is going to take to get Mr. Murdoch to say, OK, I'll take an all-cash deal from you, Mr. Roberts? Um, I think uh, you, there are various sort of, of segments here in terms of what, you know, what sort of Mr. Murdoch will be considering. I mean, an all-cash offer... You know, when you look at it at first sight, it would seem to be to the preferred route. However, you know, there may be a case here where Fox, for example, the original deal with Disney, sort of it would take a stake at Disney. Is there anything there? Maybe Fox would like still to keep a stake here in something like a Comcast in order to have a little bit of influence. So I think you, you've got to sort of weigh up those sort of of, of sort of of thoughts about. What exactly is the end game of Fox here? Is it just to maximise the price? In which case, a premium on top of what Disney has offered that would be uh, that would be fantastic. Or is there something else which it is affecting their thinking here? Ian, these are all tie-ups that we expect. These are all bids that we expect. Yesterday, traditional media got a green light to take on tech, get bigger, get better and effectively try and take on the likes of Netflix and Amazon Video, etc. Do you see in the future, Ian, a tie-up between one of the big tech firms and one of the big media companies? It's definitely possible. If you look at, you know, first of all, because the tech firms have the, have the firepower in terms of their market cap, but also as well, just because if you actually look at uh, what's happening in the, uh, sort of in the tech space, increasingly what the players are trying to get into, certainly the likes of, of Google and Facebook, they're trying to actually expand their video offering. Now, uh, there's a, a good, very good reason for that. It's sort of, of video advertising, online video advertising has grown, grown very quickly, but you need content for that. And if you look at these companies at the moment, they don't really have much in the way of content. Now, they've been trying to build up some of that, but the, the organic efforts, this is a, a classic situation where organically it's going to be extremely difficult to do so. So if you want to build up scale, you have to go and acquire. That, that, to me, would suggest that at some point soon we're going to start to see some of these tech companies you know, seriously considering <clears throat> yeah. looking at buying content assets. Revenue, Ian, is made up of price and units. Isn't there a basically a, a, a global price war in media right now? Do they have a revenue persistency they can use to calculate all these mergers to come? I think it, it, it really depends on... on which particular segment that you're looking for. If, you, if you've got something, for example, like a pay TV operator, it should actually be quite a simple calculation. That is exactly that. It is subscribers times your average revenue per user, and that should give you sort of, yeah. of total revenues and so forth. I think for some other things, it's a little bit, sort of, it's a little bit more difficult because let's say, for example, you're, you are a tech company, you want to buy content, and therefore, what you're trying to do is that you're thinking about this from a longer-term strategic angle. You know, there's a question mark of, does it help you to expand into new markets? Does it help you to protect your existing share? That sort of thing can be a lot more difficult to, to actually calculate. And I think there's always sort of the issue here that, in, in, I think particularly for something like content, where people have this sort of view of how it could be monetized, but it's not exactly sort of pinned down sort of in a quite a rigorous, rigorous scientific calculation. Right. But you know, if, you, if you're big in terms of market cap, the temptation is always just, as it were, splash out the cash right. to buy content assets okay. that you think are valuable and must have. <clears throat>
Ian, thank you so much. Ian Whitaker with a great brief there this morning from Live Room on uh, merger acquisitions, transactions uh, to come as well. Uh, Lindsay Piegs uh, gets us smarter as we migrate to Fed Day today. She does that with a really important research note, always with some good charts. Lindsay, what's the most important chart for Chairman Powell? I think right now the chairman is very much focused on the rising trend in inflation. As you just reported, the PPI up stronger than expected yesterday, the CPI continuing to show an upward trend, and the chairman is very much focused on that rise in inflation. Of course, there will be many committee members that will be focused on the PCE, their preferred measure of inflation, which remains just at that 2% target. Well, you've got a gorgeous little yellow dotty line there at the Fed's 2% target. Within the game, you know, the parlor game of what you do and the Fed work and all that, they're allowed to overshoot, aren't they? If that's the case, how much overshoot can they overshoot? They certainly are allowed to overshoot. It's not about reaching that 2% target for one month. It's about reaching it and sustaining it. And, of course, there will be volatility month to month, which suggests that inflation could temporarily read above that 2% objective. And I think the committee would be very comfortable with a temporary rise somewhere between 2 to 2.5%, particularly given that there still is a, a number of skeptics on the Fed that this is only a temporary bout of inflation. And the long longer-term directional pressures may still be to the downside. So I do think there is quite a bit of wiggle room in terms of the Fed's objective that would allow inflation to temporarily overshoot. And Lindsay, what are the consequences of moving through neutral, going from an accommodative stance to something that's a little bit more restrictive, real tightening? Oh, I think there's a big risk to the economy. Right now, we're still struggling to maintain 2%-ish growth on the U.S. economy. And remember, since the end of the financial crisis, we've been trending at just 2.2%, which is the weakest pace of a recovery since post-World War II history. So we're still talking about very moderate conditions. And should the Fed get overly aggressive, they could easily pull the rug out from under the uh, domestic economy. Come on, the game changed yesterday, Lindsay. I mean, you've been doing this for ages. And the game changed yesterday with that inflation-adjusted wage growth. I'm looking at the 2-10 spread, folks, and I'm going to do a 50-day. I don't know if it gets back far enough. 50-day intraday? Yeah, the 50-day intraday. And we are now on an intraday basis where we're – Low, low, low. Yes, we just hit it. We just hit a new low intraday on the 210 spread. And, Lindsay, it came off inflation-adjusted wage growth. It's just not there. And the rationalization is, well, inflation's up. 100% of my audience knows real wages are going nowhere. How do they raise into that? Oh, and that's one of the conundrums that the Fed is facing. When we talk about inflation, we usually look at it from the standpoint of the wage price spiral, meaning that the economy is recovering, businesses are expanding, they start to draw down the pool of available labor, and wages start to increase. That's the typical improvement cycle. But we're simply not seeing that. And without that growth, it's going to be very difficult for the Fed to justify a rate increase beyond what's already priced in, meaning June and September, particularly as the curve continues to flatten. Now, I'm certainly not suggesting that it's a simplistic one-to-one correlation, but when you're talking about a 
40, 50 basis points spread between twos and tens, and the Fed is threatening to raise an additional 50 basis points, well, we could be talking about an inverted curve by the end of the year. Lindsay, is there a bite point? And I know it's a bit of a juvenile question because there won't be a number in Chair Powell's mind we'll that, allow he's those th- today. That, he, that he gets nervous. But just in terms of a range, if you can give me a range, Lindsay, when does the Federal Reserve really start to get nervous because they've laid it out. Whether you think they should or shouldn't, they have laid it out that they are watching the yield curve and they don't mm. want it to invert. So with two tens at 40 basis points, is it somewhere between 10 and 20, somewhere between zero and 20 that they start to get a little bit nervous and back off? Oh, I think they should already be very nervous. Interesting. I think, I think 40 basis points is an alarming signal to the Fed that the long end of the curve is not buying into the Fed's very optimistic assessment of where conditions are headed. So I, I think at this point the Fed should be very nervous. And again, when we talk about what the Fed should do versus what they will do, we do expect two interest rate hikes, yeah. but they should maybe back off uh, even at this point. It will be more interesting, Lindsay, as we stagger into September 26, November 8, <laughs> yes, and December 19th. Lindsay uh, Piazza, Dr. Piazza, thank you so much. Uh, with Steve this morning. This is a joy uh, within the blur of thinking and analysis and within everybody saying just the simple historic moment of a handshake in Singapore was extraordinary. There's been a real effort for careful analysis of what went on before, what's going on right now, and possibly what we will know of the future. Eli Lake with brilliant essays for Bloomberg Opinion, and I told our team we got to get Mr. Lake on. Eli, let me ask you an open question just to get things started. Now what in this effort to bring North Korea into a modern age? Well, first of all, thank you very much for that very kind introduction. Um, I think now what is, I mean, Trump said it. He um, intends on having people like Mike Pompeo meet with North Korean counterparts for a series of meetings to actually hammer out some details and basic details, like a time frame for what next steps are going to be taken by the North Korean but denuclearization. Um, you know, Trump announced the end of military exercises, which he called war games and said were expensive and very provocative, which um, I think was unwise to call them war games. But um, that said, he announced some of the concessions. And we should acknowledge here that the North Koreans also gave up some hostages that they had taken um, of course, after effectively killing Otto Warmbier uh, a year right. ago. Um, and also, you know, they have blown up um, one of their test sites. And then Trump mentioned, although we have to get more details on it, that there will be another missile testing site that they will decommission. So it's the North Korea, and, they, they, and, and, and most important, it's been seven months and they haven't tested any um, nuclear devices or any missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that so far, so good. My issue is that I think that Trump could have gotten all of this and not engaged in the over-the-top sycophant flattery that was on display in Singapore, because Kim Jong-un is a monster, and we should be clear about that. 
he doesn't have to say he's a monster, but he doesn't have to say that the North Korean people right. love their dear leader and all this other well, stuff, which is we, just nonsense. We just had Stephen Norper on, and we were looking at condos on the beaches in North Korea. Eli, like one of your cottage industries is a linkage of international relations to the Pentagon. How will the various and sundry brass at the Pentagon react to the military exercises curtailed? Vice President Pence had to manage that message yesterday. I don't think that that's going to be really much of a problem. Okay. We have um, a strong tradition in America of civilian control of the military. Um, when the Pentagon doesn't like something, they're like anything else in Washington, they will leak about it. But I don't necessarily think that the idea that we're going to be calling off the military exercises as part of this diplomatic exercise is going to be something that's, I think they're, much, let me put it like this, I think they have much bigger fish to fry. Yeah. They want to make sure that they end, um, you know, the sort of series of cuts that were agreed in 2011 between Obama and a Republican Congress, um, you know, as part of the military, as part of an effort to try to balance the budget. Yeah. That was something that, you know, military leaders really didn't like, and they managed to get Trump to sort of move off of that as well as a Republican Congress. Eli, I'd love it if you could help us sort of parse through the noise from reality, because you have President Trump, who's known to go back on his word sometimes, Kim Jong-un, who's been uh, fairly unreliable in the past as well. Uh, this was a handshake. There was nothing that concrete that was agreed to. What what did we move forward? I mean, what concrete can we cling to that is not noise? Well, as I said, I think that if we continue to see the streak of no tests from North Korea, that's a good thing, and that's actually a marker. And in some ways, even though I was, I've been critical of Trump on this because, as I said, um, you know, I think the nature of these regimes really matters uh, in terms of the durability of these kinds of arrangements. But to his credit, you know, deciding to suspend uh, and call off the South Korea U.S. military exercises is something that can also easily be turned on. So it's something that if if there is anything that the, that suggests the North Koreans are not living up to their word, it's not like he gave away something that he can't take take back. And in that respect, um, you know, uh, you could argue that it was a, it was a good chip to sort of play. Right. Um, but again, I my concern here is that at the end of the day, the format, the formula for this deal is the same as every other attempt, which is we will give security guarantees to your terrible regime if you give up these nukes. And I don't, and it hasn't worked so far, and I don't know if that's a great bargain down the line, because it really does make the United States and the other Western civilized great powers that support it kind of, you know, partners in a crime against North Korean people. And that is, even though I, I understand that statesmanship is all about choices and hard choices, and if you really can get a verifiable agreement where they get rid of their nuclear weapons and end that kind of threat to the United States and the West Coast of the United States and Japan, that's a good thing. If you can add to you know stabilizing tensions on the peninsula, that's a good thing. And it may, in fact, be worth it. But in the end, I don't think it's durable because sooner or later, all of these kinds of tyrannies fall. And just keep in mind, Soviet Union signed all kinds of arms control agreements with the United States, including Ronald Reagan. But in the end, it, it didn't stop Boris Yeltsin from ultimately collapsing the Soviet Union because eventually the people who had to live under that evil empire decided enough is enough. 
You know, we had Stephen Norper uh, of Columbia University on earlier in the show, and he was talking about how uh, this meeting in Singapore changed the calculus for China and for Russia. And I'm wondering what your perspective is. I mean, this was viewed as a win for China, the U.S. reducing troops there. Do you think that this gives uh, the U.S. a leg up in negotiations with China about trade? I'm not entirely sure it does. I mean, what we've seen so far, and it's hard to know what goes on in detail in those negotiations, is that Trump intervened to um, save ZTE, their second largest telecom company, um, after you know a process had completed that basically said Americans could not buy uh, equipment from them or sell equipment to them because of a lot of things, including serious national security risks that they are basically putting bugs in their uh, you know, various kinds of switches and, and circuits and stuff. So in that respect, I think that a big thing in the background was that it was helpful to have the Chinese on board encouraging Kim to participate in this diplomacy. Now, it's possible that because Trump, if Trump really has forged a personal and good relationship with Kim Jong-un, then, you know, maybe he will be able to say, listen, it's in your interest and we don't need China to encourage you to do this. But until, well, you know, for in the last year and a half, that's, that has been the dynamic. So I don't know that it helps. Right. How does Secretary Mattis respond to the last two, three, four days? I don't know. I don't think that sometimes Secretary Mattis has, has two nicknames. One of them is the warrior monk because he is a true intellectual and reads all kinds of things, particularly from ancient history. Uh, the other is Mad Dog Mattis, and, and he has talked eloquently before about the, the very nature of war. Um, so, but I don't think that he is that kind of caricature. I think that he would see the strategic value if there's a chance to get denuclearization. Yeah. Mattis is not a typical neocon. He's not somebody like, I say myself, who really cares a lot about the internal dynamics of these regimes that you negotiate with. I think he's much more of a kind of cold-eyed realist in that right. regard. Right. So I don't necessarily think that Mattis would have okay. heartburn about this. I think he has much yeah. more heartburn about the treatment of tr- Trump has shown to right. U.S. allies of the G7 and NATO. Right. Eli Lake, thank you so much. Love seeing your work with uh, Tim Lake and uh, Tim O'Brien and our others uh, at Bloomberg Opinion. Eli Lake, I, I, I put it out on Twitter. I'll get that story out again. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.